in Exodus chapter 19. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. And the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Thank you, Dave, for leading so well. And thanks for reading that, um, that reading to us. Uh, hopefully, uh, that gives you a flavour um, of the context of what we're looking at this morning. Uh, and next week as well, uh, Nigel Butcher, again from Cheam, is coming back. And he's going to be doing uh, another commandment uh, next week. Um, I'm not sure what you think about the Ten Commandments. Uh, when you hear the words Ten Commandments, certain things might pop into your heads. Some, some, something like this. Um, oh, no more rules. It tends to be some people's approach, um, a set of out-of-date uh, commands that we don't really need anymore, we don't need to listen to them, that can, that can be some people's uh, response, or uh, they're just boring, it's boring reading through those uh, commands, uh, especially to a people who we don't know anymore uh, and lived so long ago, how on earth can these be uh, relevant uh, to us? Uh, hopefully you've come across the Ten Commandments at some point in your life. Uh, it might have been in a school lesson, kind of RE lesson. I've covered the, the Ten Commandments in some way. might have been in a Sunday school. Uh, I remember me and Chris sitting in a, a JF meeting with, uh, with Ten Commandments going through them. I'm not sure if you remember that. Vaguely, Vaguely. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it might have just been at home reading your Bible. You come across them. Um, or uh, if you read the Bible as a family, you might have come across them in, in a kind of family uh, Bible that you read through. Uh, but whatever you think of them, I trust that over the next two weeks, uh, we begin to think, actually, the Ten Commandments show us something amazing about God. Uh, the Ten Commandments show us, uh, hopefully, a bigger picture of who God is, uh, but also what we're like. Those are two strands that we're going to be looking at. Uh, who, what is God like? What do the Ten Commandments reveal about God's character, who he is, and what do they reveal about us, his people? Because uh, the way we're meant to see the Ten Commandments is almost like a, a marriage, a marriage ceremony. Have you, have you been to a wedding recently? Uh, weddings are, are quite, can be quite fun, can't they? Uh, so you get some uh, chance to see friends and family who you might not have seen for years, and you sit with them. You might not recognise them because they've changed so much, but you get to catch up with them. Uh, you get to eat together. Usually there's a decent meal at a wedding. It's one of the reasons why you go, is to get that decent meal. I'm still wishing that more people had fish and chips for their meals, but no, no one ever does. It's always quite fancy food. Uh, you get to hear speeches, don't you? Uh, speeches, maybe people taking the mick out of each other, or maybe saying thank you. That tends to be the nature of speeches. You, you see some really dodgy dancing at weddings, don't you, as well? People who haven't danced for years suddenly feel the urge to come out on the dance floor. So weddings are great, but, but at the heart of a wedding is, is two people. 
two, if you like, individuals coming together and making promises in a form of a covenant. And, and if you like, that's at the heart of everything that's going on in Exodus, the, the, the passage we just had read for us. God is gathering his people around Mount Sinai. The people he's dragged out of Egypt. 480 years they've lived in Egypt in slavery and God has rescued them, brought them out. Not only that, but he's then led them through the Red Sea miraculously as they were being chased. He's provided food and water in the, in the chapters just before the ones we read. The people are crying out for food, crying out for provision, and God does that. He, he provides food in a form of manna and quail and, and water through the rock. And he's done all these things, and now he gathers his people and says, I want to enter into a covenant with you. I want to enter into a promised relationship with you. And God speaks to his people through this man, Moses. And he explains through Moses how his new wife, if you like, it, it needs to behave. That's what the Ten Commandments are. An expectation of them as his people, as his wife, if you want to use that imagery, how they are to live. And how they are to live and show it, actually, this is the God we are. They are to reflect the God that they serve, almost like their husbands. So these commandments reveal something of God's character. That God is telling his people, this is what you are to be like, because this is what I am like. But it also, the darker side shows us actually our natural hearts. Each commandment reveals something about our natural hearts. So as I said, those are the two things we're going to work through. What is God like? What does the commandment reveal about God? And what does the commandment reveal about us? The first commandment's quite simple, isn't it? I'm not sure if you've still got your Bibles open, but please do so if you've uh, closed them. Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 1. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, he begins. Who brought you out of Egypt? He rem reminds them of everything that's happened. Out of the land of slavery. And therefore, commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm to be your number one, God says. No others. And then, as we move into commandment two and three and four, God then, having established that he is their God, unpacks a little bit about how they are to worship him, how they are to approach him. That's what the second and third commandment reveal. And so we have in verse 4 to 6, today's commandment. Again, look at that in your Bibles, if you haven't, just to refresh your memories. They did a great job of summarising this in the kids' talk. But let's read it again. You shall not make for yourself an image in the, in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. What does this command reveal about God? Two things it reveals about God. First of all, nothing we produce or create can fully capture God. Nothing we can produce or create can fully capture God. Uh, the Israelites lived, as we've just seen, in a culture which was full of idols and images. I, I didn't know that stat off the top of my head about the Egyptian gods. It was in my notes. 2,000 gods, deities, 
from the land they just come in. You couldn't wander around Egypt without coming across some sort of deity or God that they worshipped. Some of them were gods like natural ones, like the sun and the Nile. Some of the gods were designed and fashioned by the Egyptians themselves. They kind of had two animals brought together, squashed together. I'm not sure if I'd been a, a pregnant woman, whether I'd want to pray to that god. What was it, Bar? Ah, man, he looked ugly, didn't he? He put me off. Uh, but if you go around the British Museum, there are loads of replicas, or in some cases, genuine articles of these gods that you can see, that the Egyptians worshipped. And the Israelites had lived in that culture for centuries. And as they go into the uh, different parts of the Old Testament, if you move into books like Judges, you'll see that this is an, uh, an unusual phenomenon, that there are other gods that are out there. Gods like Baal or Baal, depending how you pronounce it, and Asherah, who the, the Israelites are kind of tempted to worship because the other nations around them are worshipping those gods. Go into the New Testament, what do we find? We see the same thing. If you know the book of Acts, you'll know that Paul, uh, one of the men called to, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, goes to a place called Athens. And in Athens, he comes across a city where you could not walk down the street without encountering a shrine or a temple or some sort of god. So it's not just an Old Testament phenomenon. This is into the New Testament as well. And as God gathers his people, he wants to warn his people, you cannot fashion things in an attempt to represent me. You cannot do that. Why? Because your best attempts will not capture me. The best attempts of your hands will not capture me in my fullness. If you've got a Bible, turn to um, Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, these verses just help us capture a little bit about what God is like. Isaiah chapter 40. Um, I think my Bible is the same roughly as yours. So when you get to the right page number, you can call out and then I can find it. 724, thank you very much. 724, uh, Isaiah chapter 40 and uh, verse 13 and 15. Listen to the way that, that God is described in these verses. Starting at verse 12, actually. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? This is God that's being described. Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him or who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Do you see the way that God is described in those verses? God holds the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. Can you claim to have that power, that ability? He collects the mountains and the dust of the earth and puts them on scales and weighs them. No one comes to God and advises him or instructs him. This is a God beyond our comprehension. So vast is he, so wise is he, so eternal is he. His knowledge is complete. His wisdom is perfect. His power is beyond us. 
and we think that we can fashion something that represents that. That's what the Israelites might have been tempted to do. That's why God makes his command. And God says, you can't do that. Don't do it. Don't try and fashion something with your hands that you think is a representation of me. Uh, Going back to the book of Acts, Paul talked in the same way when he speaks to these Athenians who made these many gods. He says these words, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live by temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. That is the God that the Israelites were coming before to enter into this marriage agreement. That is the God that we gathered before this morning. A God so amazing, so vast. And God says, don't try and capture me and and shape something into what you might worship instead of me. That's the first thing that it reveals about God. But the second thing it reveals about God is that he's jealous. Did you see that in that verse? He's jealous. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Do you get jealous? What kind of things do you or we get jealous about? Uh, We might get jealous about people's gifts, might we? The way they've been gifted in certain sports, maybe. You might be jealous of people's lifestyle, the the way they're able to just go on holidays wherever they want. The way that you might be jealous of people's intelligence or exam results. I was on a camp this week and loads of uh, youngsters got their GCSE results. And I was in a boys group. And as they got their results, you could sense that they were kind of looking out and saying, "What, what did that person next to me get? What did that girls group over there get? They were slightly jealous, maybe if they hadn't done as well as they thought. God gets jealous when he sees his creation worship things instead of him. That is what makes God jealous. When we swap God for something that is nothing like what he is like. God looks down from the throne of heaven and what does he see his creation doing often? He sees us take things that he's given us and worship them instead of him. That is what makes God jealous. And it's a righteous jealousy because he deserves our full attention. At home I have a a fridge. I'm sure you have a fridge as well. Uh, Sometimes um, certain pictures appear on our fridge. Um, Amy... Uh, one of my four-year-old twins uh, decided to draw a picture of our family a few weeks ago. Uh, And so I came home from work and I I saw uh, this picture and she said, Daddy, Daddy, come and look. So I went over to the fridge and I I looked and there were these shapes and things on the bit of paper. And above it, she'd helpfully written the names, but even the names were spelt wrong. And uh, I saw in the corner this, this little squiggle and this little squiggle had a kind of couple of arms, a couple of legs that were different lengths, uh, and a head. And on the head, there was a mohawk. <laughs> About a foot, hawk, foot tall, it was massive. 
And uh, I, I said to Amy, uh, who, who's that? Oh, that's you, Daddy. <laughs> and I, I said, but is that what I look like, Amy? Do you really think that's what I look like? Yes, it is, she said. <laughs> now, I, I, can, I can understand why she's done that. I, I'm appreciative of her efforts. It's not a fair representation, but I, I can understand. I can empathise. I enjoy it. But imagine if a week later, Amy is carrying around that picture with her. And uh, she's given up talking to me. Instead, she's talking to this imitation of me. And all her attention is invested in that imitation. All her attention and devotion and love is wrapped up in this picture of me. And she completely cuts off my relationship with her. How would I feel? I'd feel a bit disappointed. I'd feel a bit hurt. But one of the things I'd also feel is jealous. I'd feel jealous about this picture that has replaced me. Especially as it doesn't even look like me. It's kind of the way that we live, isn't it? And God looks at us and looks at the things we do and the things that we worship and thinks that same thing. Why are you worshipping that? God says. Look at me. I'm over here. Don't worship that. Don't worship that image. But unfortunately, that reveals something about our hearts, doesn't it? You see, if those two things that we know about God, it reveals about God that, that he cannot be encapsulated in an image and an idol made, it, made by our hands and that he's jealous, what it reveals about us is that we love to replace God by fashioning fakes. We love to do that, even though we don't realise it. We love to replace or exchange God for something we can feel or something we can touch or something we can visualise. Sometimes we do that physically. So you might get a bit of wood, like these people did back then in the ancient Near East. Or a rock, and you shape it and carve it and put it somewhere in your house. And you worship that thing. Go to certain parts of Eastern Asia and you'll see that those things still exist. It's one of the things that actually the Israelites fell into straight after the Ten Commandments were given. In Exodus chapter 32, not, not more than a few weeks after they've been given this command, what do the people do? Well, they've given up hope of Moses coming back down the mountain. He's been up there a few days, a few weeks. He, he's gone, they say. And so they, they get Aaron and they say to Aaron, listen, Aaron, we want you to fashion something that we can worship. We want you to make something that we can see, that we can give our praise to. And so in Exodus chapter 32, all the people took off their earrings and they gather them and bring them to Aaron. And when he took them, he handed them, when they handed him over to them, he cast an idol in the shape of a calf, like a small cow, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, the people said, the people who'd just been given this command, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. You see what they've done? This is the God who's rescued them. This is the God they've entered the covenant into. And just a few weeks later, they are fashioning something and putting all their effort and worship into worshipping something that's so small and insignificant. A, a cow made up of gold. And we look at it and say, you fools, what are you doing? 
but that's not really much different to what we do, often. We can see the folly in their actions, but we're so slow to see the folly in our actions. And it's no wonder that God's anger burns against his people when he sees them do this. He says, Moses, you need to go back down, Moses, sort your people out, because I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses says, no, you can't. But you can understand why God would want that. They've exchanged him already. And maybe fashioning an idol or fashioning a bit of wood or fashioning a stone isn't maybe something that we're naturally going to do. But something we are naturally going to do is not too far off this. Because we love to fashion things in our hearts and in our minds. That's the way that we often as a culture will fashion things. Create images of things. You, you see it in some of the cartoons. If you ever watched The uh, Simpsons or something like that? You see God portrayed in a certain way, don't you? How's God portrayed in The Simpsons or in a cartoon? Was some sort of fluffy figure, some sort of doddery character, some sort of figure that doesn't really know what they're doing. That's how we can sometimes picture God. Or we picture him as some sort of vengeful God who has no love and just wants to tell us off the whole time. That's how we can picture God, who burns at every mistake that we make. Or we picture him as someone who's distant, who doesn't really care about us. He's not that interested in what happens on this earth. Or we just think of him as unpleasant. Why would God allow the suffering that we see in the world? I don't want to know a God like that. Again, we, we fashion, we, we picture God in that way. And in all of those ways, what we're doing is we're, we're squashing God down into something that we can image and fashion. But it's not a fair representation of him. It's not uh, what we see in the God of the Bible. Unfortunately, one of the ways we increasingly fashion God, even in church, is we take the nice things about God and focus on them. So we focus on his love and on his mercy. Uh, uh, but we don't teach anything about hell, because that's unpleasant. And so we cut that bit off. We, we kind of, with a chisel, we chop it. Don't want that bit. Let's focus on the bits we like. Or, or we uh, treat God as uh, he's so loving, but we, we don't really think he's going to deal with sin. And we don't even like saying to people that you're sinful. Repent. And so we chop that bit off and we just focus on his love. That, that, that's what some churches are doing. It's dangerous. What are we doing? We're fashioning God. We're sculpt, sculpting him into something that the Bible doesn't describe. Here is the God of the Israelites, way back then. And he's inviting the Israelites to say, I am your God. Reflect me in the way that you live. Don't try and fashion me. Don't try and sculpt me into something. Enjoy who I am. And as we go into the New Testament, similarly, God says to us, this is who I am. I am your God. And this is how you come to me, not through an image of an idol. No, you come to me through my son. Because if you've seen my son, you've seen me. That's what Jesus says. It's famously written in Romans chapter 5. Again, if you've got a Bible, flick there as we close. 
Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 to 6. This is Paul speaking to the church in Rome and he's just uh, explained to the church in Rome uh, everything that's been done for them through Christ, his death, his sacrifice. And Paul begins chapter 5 by therefore saying, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Then down in verse 6, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see the God we have from those verses? The God who sends Jesus down for us? But so often we, we kind of wash that aside. I don't want that. I prefer to live for these things over here. Or, or I'm just going to ignore it and, and do my own thing because actually I think I'm good enough. That is the God we have. That is the saviour we have. And as we see that saviour, we should think, actually, I don't want to give my life to idols and things that are a, a simple imitation of who God is. I don't want to, to give my life for, for things that actually are nothing like God. Dave really helpfully listed a few early, didn't he? Those things, those trappings that we so easily get into. Jesus says, don't do that. Look at me. Look at what I've done. And this is how you are to respond. Paul says in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't worship idols, images, false representations. Worship me by living your life, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't try and fashion God. Don't try and replace him. Embrace him. Everything about him. And the way we do that is by coming to the Lord Jesus and saying, oh, I'm not good enough. You've done so much for me. Please love me and help my life to be an imitation of everything that you have done for me. That's what those verses are saying. 